welcome to another episode of Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. I'm your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. I'm a romantic in two senses, which is half as many as this opera is. That sounds intriguing. So what's our opera for today? Our opera today is Les Troyens by Hector Berlioz. And for those of us whose French is a little rusty, what does that mean? The Trojans. The Trojans. You mean from Troy? The ones from Troy. You heard them in that very last song singing about how the Greeks had run away and given up on the war and left behind this magnificent gift of a horse. Isn't it wonderful for them? Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's where that expression comes from. It's a reference to this famous incident in history, legend, myth, something, where... The Trojan horse. The Trojan horse is left behind as a great gift to maybe Athena, maybe Neptune, somebody. And it serves as the downfall of the Trojans. Not so much of a welcome gift, really. No, not so much. Set the scene for us here, Grant. So, we open on the city of Troy. It's been at war for ten years with the combined Greek forces of all the city-states that have come to rescue Helen and loot the city Troy of all its treasures. And the Greeks, on this tenth year... They pack up in their ships and they head over the horizon, leaving behind a magnificent wooden horse. Like a party favor? Exactly. Just like a party favor, which someone leaving the party early left for the host. And... And that's what they're singing about in that song we just heard. And they think it's a marvelous gift and they're going to roll it up to the city and... uh, They actually have to knock down a part of the wall to get it in there, according to the song. Wait, wait, wait. They knock down their defensive walls to get Uh in this 
big wooden horse. Oh yeah, they won the war. It's all over. They're totally safe now. The Greeks, and, they, they sailed away. And they're celebrating. Yeah. I have a bad feeling about this. I, that, that's, a, that's a correct bad feeling to have. <laughs> so, the Greeks, they haven't, in fact, all left. There are a few of them hidden inside of the horse. Some of you may have heard this story. And outside the horse, there is one person who knows what's up, and that is Cassandra. And is she Greek? She's one of the Trojans, and her problem is that she offended the gods, and they cursed her with a pretty terrible curse, when you think about it. What was it? Her curse was to see the future, but to never be able to do anything to prevent the calamities she saw coming. Oh, how magnificently frustrating. Yeah, that, that's about as frustrating as you can imagine. She actually has a betrothed in this story, and you have to wonder how exactly that went. A fiancé? Yes. Okay, and he doesn't believe her. Nobody believes her. Nobody can believe her. They're all blocked by the gods from ever believing anything she says. And so she says, don't put that horse into the city. Like, that'll be the end of all of us. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 whatever. You're always on about something. Heartbreaking, actually, because we, we kind of know what's going to happen. Here. Yes. <laughs> oh, poor woman. Poor woman. All right. So, so this next song yes. is Cassandra singing about how she knows something's up and gradually the vision becomes clearer and clearer to her. And she is trying to think of a way to convince anyone and... Spoiler alert, nothing will convince anyone. Well, once you're cursed and the gods make sure they make sure it happens. Yeah, nothing oh to be done. Oh boy. That's, uh, that's, that's fate for you. We'll come All back right. to fate. So let's listen to this next piece. Thank you. 
You are listening to 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming, and this is Opera for Everyone. Today we are listening to Hector Berlioz's Les Troyens. So we just heard Cassandra lamenting what she knows to be the fate of Troy. For the Greeks are about to be loud into the city through the artifice of the wooden horse. The famous Trojan horse. The famous Trojan horse. And... The rest of Act One, uh, which we're not going to play from extensively because this is a long opera. Four full CDs long. Four full CDs. A five-act opera. It's sort of two operas in one, but we can we can talk about that, I think, in a moment here. I have some information on that one. Yeah, you, you can help us out there? Yes. So, yeah, the fir- whole first act is basically the Trojans are so, so, so happy, and Cassandra's like, oh, no, this isn't going to go well. So... We alluded to the fact that there's two operas kind of in one here. Yes. This opera is set imaginarily sometime around the year 1200-1300, ballpark. When was it originally written, performed? That's actually a more complicated answer than is typical for operas. It was actually later in Berlioz's career that he composed this opera and if we have time later on we can talk a little bit about his early career because there's some fascinating stuff there but this particular piece actually he was encouraged to write this by the mistress of his good friend Franz Liszt Liszt the piano player Liszt the piano player exactly he was they were very good friends Liszt had come to see one of his performances or one of his pieces being performed in Paris. They met, they became good friends, and in fact Liszt was the one who transcribed probably the most famous piece that Berlioz ever wrote, Symphonie Fantastique. He transcribed it for piano so it could be more widely played and enjoyed by people because you can't always pull together a giant symphony orchestra. Anyway, I digress. He began writing this in the 1860s, early 1860s, and the the last three acts of this five-act opera were performed in 1863. They premiered in Paris in 1863 under the name of Les Troyens à Carthage. À Carthage? I don't know how to say that in French, but um, but the part... Carthage in Phoenician. Show off. (laughs) (laughs) It it means new city. At any rate, it wasn't completed, it wasn't performed as a complete work until 1890, well after Berlioz died. So it, it came in pieces with the recognition that it is set in two places. The beginning two acts are in Troy, the last three acts are in Carthage, and it's just a monstrously large opera and difficult to produce so it didn't really get get going until the late 19th century and even in the 20th century there were bits and starts and it was only in 18 excuse me 1957 that when it was performed as a full opera in Covent Garden that it really kicked it off as a something to be performed as a whole all five acts together but it's a major undertaking for any opera company. You might say the length is epic. <laughs> yes, you you could say it is epic. It is based on a particularly famous epic, or in part based on a particular epic. Beowulf. Now, don't confuse us. Gilgamesh. No, I am kidding, of course. It is based <laughs> on the Aeneid, the famous epic by Virgil, 
depicting the origins of his city of Rome. Oh, but here we are with Troy and the Greeks and... Well, you're going to have to explain how that's all connected. Yeah, because at this point in the play, it doesn't seem all that terribly connected. It doesn't actually seem like we have anything to do with Italy. But, well, I suppose that's what our next song is for. Oh, excellent. Our next song opens with the curtain rising on Act 2. The Greeks have just begun to attack the city. Aeneas lies Wait, pause asleep. pause for a second and tell us how the Greeks got into the city. Just remind us. They were, they were rolled in on a horse, a wooden horse. And they have, in some version of the story, opened the gate. In this version of the story, they seem to have actually knocked down the walls of Troy to get the horse in in the first place. In any event, the Greek army is able to rush into the city and begin sacking and destroying it. Oh, that's terrifying. Uh, yes, the destruction of cities and the way that they are sacked and destroyed and plundered and their inhabitants sold off into slavery is one of the great horrors of history. And it is always lurking behind all pre-modern stories about what war is and what war is like that whatever can be said of the battlefield being glorious or an opportunity for honor or any of that, what happens when a war is over is terrible beyond words. Sounds like good material for an opera. Yeah, we, we like dramatic material here for an opera. So yeah. as the Greeks have begun to destroy the city of Troy, Aeneas lies in his bed. Aeneas, the greatest hero left living in Troy. He's the second most powerful, successful warrior in the famous epic, the Iliad, second only to the greatest Trojan to have ever lived. Hector. Hector. So Hector appears in ghostly form. Because he has died in battle. Yes, he's died earlier in that same year. Spoiler alert, but that's kind of what the Iliad's about. And... He's he's back to say, hey, Aeneas, you should probably know your city's about to be destroyed. And Aeneas is like, oh, no, oh, no, what do I do? Oh, yeah, and Cassandra's like, I, I've been trying to tell you that. Yeah, but no one listens to Cassandra. No one listens to Cassandra. Poor Cassandra. Poor Cassandra. So Aeneas is roused by the ghost of Hector, and the ghost of Hector gives him a mission. He says, you must take your family... You must take the great golden horde of Troy, secure it from the Greeks, and escape with it. Escape to Italy, there to found a city, an empire that will be greater than the city or the empire of Troy ever was. Wow. So this is sort of interesting because so much of what happens in the Iliad and the Odyssey is directed by the gods. And the way you just explained it, the instructions to Aeneas are not given by the gods. They're given by Hector. Yes. His ancestors, the gods, fate, all of it seems to align in a particular way to push Aeneas towards his inevitable destiny of founding the city of Rome. Do we have some music coming up? I think we do. Excellent. So here is Aeneas hearing of his destiny from the ghost of Hector.
Thank you. 
wow, that was powerful. Yeah, magnificent, wasn't it? Yes, I, I should probably say before we discuss it, we are listening to Les Troyens by Hector Berlioz. All right, that was a lot of voices. It was, and a lot of French, and I unfortunately don't speak any French, but I recognize that last word, Italy, Italy. Italy, Italy. Wow. Why so, are they saying Italy? Because the ghost said that they need to go to Italy. Ah. Huh? But not the women who are killing themselves. No. They have placed their fate on Aeneas's shoulders and said, Aeneas, save our sons. Go to Italy. Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> 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 they have to kill themselves to save the, their honor, their to remain intact as true Trojan women, but they're giving their sons to Aeneas. Ugh. Oh. Yes, it's a it's a tragic a tragic moment, but you'll be happy to know that the next song has us in a completely different place, and fortunately here, everyone is very happy because the people we're about to see have escaped and they are happy and they've built a new city and everything is going well for them. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, goodbye for the people we lost and life carries on, I guess. In the new city. Are we in Italy? Have we built Rome? Yeah, in just one day. Very uh, famously. Oh, stop it. <laughs> no, we are, we are in fact taken to a place where another band of refugees, these people are refugees from Tyre, and the king of Tyre has forced them all to leave, and they are followers of their queen, Dido. They Ooh. have built the city of Carthage. Carthage. Okay, so we know Carthage is in northern Africa. Where's yeah. Tyre? Tyre is in what we would call historiographically the Levant. It's located in the area of Phoenicia, which is vaguely corresponding to the contemporary territory of Lebanon. All right, so on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. Yes. Great. All right. But we're going to get to Italy eventually, or, or not in this opera? Well, we'll have to see. We'll have to see if All they right. follow their fate, or if they're able to escape their fate. That's All not right. usually how things work in Greek mythology, unfortunately. So, so, okay, so let me get this straight. We are a bunch of refugee Trojans hanging out with a bunch of refugee Tyrians? <laughs> yeah, we're not actually we're not actually with the Tyrians yet, or the oh, okay. Carthaginians, I suppose we'll call them. Okay. Uh, Carthage just just means new town. In, really? In, in Phoenician, yeah. Oh, there's more of that Phoenician. Okay. Yeah, it turns out Phoenician is one of these closely related languages, and if you're half decent with Hebrew or Arabic or anything else from that area, you're probably going to be able to figure things out bit by bit. So. <laughs> As we all are, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Carthaginian, it's, it's interesting, because Carthage is, as you point out, very far away from the eastern Mediterranean. Carthage is in northern Africa, Tunisia. Uh, Just kind of below Italy, more or less, right? Yeah, right, right, right near Sicily. Sicily is a place that would become important in Roman and Carthaginian politics in the future. Yeah. And so they're, they're very far away, but in many ways they're actually recognizable from a few different angles in the history of Western culture because we have quite a lot of evidence about their culture and religious practices 
from both the Near East and from the Levant, to, and to an extent in, in Egypt, and certainly later on in North Africa, especially in their later interactions with the Romans. Okay, but I think we need more opera story here. What's happening next? So we find ourselves with the Carthaginians, and they're just really, really happy. They've escaped, they've made it, they're in their new city, they've managed to secure some territory from, yeah, with the begrudging acquiescence of the local king, and everything is is going to be all right, or so they think. And we find ourselves on a celebration of the citizens of Carthage. Oh, so here we are right at the beginning of Act 3, which, by the way, apropos of my earlier comment, this is where the opera began when it was first performed, Les Troyens à Carthage. But we have the songs where they're just saying the heavens are blessing our celebration. And then they want to talk about Queen Dido and how much they adore her and everyone's joyous. Let's listen.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL, and today's opera is Les Troyens by Hector Berlioz. Well, that piece we just heard was quite magnificent. I loved the cymbals. And the horns and the whole thing. No, it's... Yeah. Uh, they've got a very distinctive sound to them, those Carthaginians. It's a happy song for a happy time, which is why I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the time period when this opera was created? Is this a happy time in Hector Berlioz's home country? Well, in brief, it was the reign of Napoleon III. By the way, there is no Napoleon II, Napoleon I being the great Napoleon Bonaparte. And France has undergone several revolutions, restorations, but right now we're back to having an emperor and things are complicated. In fact, uh, tying into the opera itself, he wanted, Berlioz wanted Napoleon III to support his work. After all, they're both Frenchmen. And Napoleon III was way more interested in supporting Tannhauser by Richard Wagner, which is sort of an interesting little opera bit. Really? We really? Uh, did an excellent opera for everyone on Tannhauser some time ago. Yes, you did. I was not part of that one, but that was that's a good one. It's a good one. There's a lot of material when it comes to Wagner. And that's what Napoleon III thought. And Berlioz was not happy. Actually, when the first iteration, the Acts 3, 4, and 5, Les Troyens and Carthage, premieres in Paris in 1863, it only plays for one night intact. Wow. Well, that's a short run. It's a huge opera. They do play it again, but he has to cut some of it. And then the next night, he has to cut some more, and he has to cut some more. So this was a much tweaked with opera, getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And it actually makes it quite a challenge for music historians to put together an intact, complete opera to be considered the definitive opera huh. of Les Twins. They didn't put out like a director's cut at the end, like Blade Runner? <laughs> For, well, for those of you who aren't up on your film history, the joke is that the director's cut isn't actually like the final cut. There's like a there's a final cut and a director's cut, and there's like 400 of these things for that particular movie because everyone wanted a piece of it. Yeah. They, well, this one was complicated because there were different versions floating around there, and that's why these different opera companies in the 20th century working to put it together, like the one in Covent Garden in 57. And in 1969 is when they say they finally were able to compile the definitive score. And interestingly, you know, some some years later, but not too long later, in 1983 is when the Metropolitan Opera in New York put on the full opera, and they had it televised nationally. It was such a big deal. 1983. So it seems like a long time ago that this got started, but... And it's also like a big thing from a production point of view, right? It's well, just... you heard that chorus and that orchestra. That's a lot of artists performing. Yeah. And the wigs alone. I remember that from a Met HD opera thing yes, where they talked about true. the wigs at great length. It's unimaginable just the amount of effort that goes into the hair on most of these operas. It, it actually is. I saw, I went to a, um, a seminar one time where they showed us how they make, they, they, they make special forms just to fit every person's head. Yeah. And then they weave in the strands of hair. It's mind boggling. Yeah. And costumes and makeup and, and, and. And there's not all that much space back stage. It's, it's all a, a big spectacle. It is. Well, that's why we go. That's why we listen. 
Yeah, we were looking at one of the iterations that has been done of this with, I thought, really superb costuming. Very, very carefully and cleverly distinguishing the Greeks from the Trojans, from the Carthaginians, and later on showing the influence that each of these cultures had on the others. And there's a lot of material there to work with. I mean, these, these classics endure. So, speaking of classics, yes, we have here coming up a pretty classic trope which is one of the oldest in all of literature, a princess who doesn't want to be married to a prince. A prince at all, or a particular prince? A particular prince. I mean, I suppose she begins not wanting to marry any prince at all. You see, uh, Dido is a widow, and she wishes to remain faithful to her deceased husband. Uh, She, however, has a... Handmaiden, uh, assistant, compatriot. Girl Friday. Girl Friday. I think she's actually her sister. Who, <laughs> uh, named Anna, who is in this, in this next piece trying to convince her that she doesn't need to remain faithful to the dead husband. At least, not forever. But there is a prince, the king, in fact, of the surrounding people, the Numidians, who will come up later in history and, in fact, in this play. I I feel like we need to cue the violins when you say, there is a man. (laughs) Yes. He's he's trouble, though, as far as the people of Carthage are concerned. He wishes to marry Dido of Carthage, and she wants none of this. Whether or not... Anna convinces her to be interested in men in the future. It's not this guy, whatever happens. And so, Anna agrees it's not this guy? Yeah, every, everybody agrees. He's he's trouble. He's, he's trouble. Not the man for you, sister. Yes. Based on how history went later on, maybe she should have just agreed to marry the guy. Who knows? That might have worked out better for the polity. But Dido, who we meet here, she is a bit of a politician. She's certainly very popular with her people. But in the end of the day... She's not really making her decisions as a politician. She's making her decisions... With her heart. With her heart. Yes. She is a romantic. Yes. And so here we see Anna appealing to the romantic side of her queen, Dido of Carthage.
That was exquisite. I loved those two voices together. Yeah. No, they those two make a, a great duo. It would be a shame if they tried to introduce any more characters into that equation. Oh, dear. Well, just, just as a reminder, <laughs> we are listening to Les Troyens by Hector Berlioz. And the two characters that we just heard singing are Queen Dido. And she, by the way, she is a soprano. And her sister, Anna, who is a contralto, a low female voice. So the, the music they were making together was so beautiful. Yes. And we hear a fair bit there. Some of the very important voices in this. Dido is trying to always be a voice of reason, but she's got her heartstrings constantly tugged at by Anna, and in the end of the day, that's the voice that she listens to. Her sister. Yes. So by the end of that piece, she starts to at least consider the possibility that she could eventually be married, even though she has refused the proposal of the villainous King Yarbas. Tell us a little more about this villainous king. Who knows exactly how villainous he is, but it's one of these situations where we have settlers to an area, and the people who were living there beforehand have kind of had an on-and-off relationship. The famous story is that when Dido arrived in Africa, the, the Africa, the term Africa originally refers to what you and I might think of as Tunisia, this part of the world very specifically, not the entire continent, although of course the word has come to mean that. And so she arrives in Africa. Sometimes the area was also referred to as Libya, although that's a slightly to the south. Anyway, it's this area that gets referred to as Africa and Libya, and there are people who live there, and they are the Numidians, fearsome horse riders. And for a time, they try to come to an accommodation with Carthaginians. They offer to allow Queen Dido to have a place to rest, although they say she can't have much, only as much as she can cover with an ox hide. Oh, let me guess. Is there a little trick with the ox hide? So Queen Dido cuts the ox hide into strips oh. and makes a huge circle and there builds the walls of the city of Carthage. And so this great city is carved out. And there's, needless to say, a little bit of tension between the locals and the settlers. Yeah, it's like when you go to a buffet and someone says, oh, just take as much as you want. And the entire mound of food ends up on the person's plate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really not very gracious for the guest. No, not terribly. But this is a story told from the point of view of those guests. And indeed, it's a story told from the point of view of a time where colonialism was not examined in oh, the same way you're right. that it is today. Yeah, the, the mid-19th century, the Europeans were all about colonization. Yes. yes. Yeah. This was, in fact, the time period where the various aspects of the scramble for Africa were, were being worked out. We as moderns can look at this and say, well, maybe things aren't as morally cut and dry as they're imagined to be in the story. And in the manner of these ancient stories that talk about the origins of nations, there is something about the feud that goes on here. Numidia comes to 
live side by side with the Carthaginians. But it's always a little tense. And in the years to come, the Numidians will play an important role in the politics of the era. Ultimately, it is, to some extent, more than even the Romans, it is the Numidians who seal Carthage's fate. Right. And just a brief reminder for those not up on their ancient history, tell us about Carthage's fate. So... This, Br- briefly. This whole story, this romance that we're about to launch into, is the origin story for what we refer to as the Punic Wars. Punic is just a word that means purple. They're the purple people, the Carthaginians, Punic, the Punic, as in Phoenicia, yeah. Okay. Yes. And they were famous for being traders across the area. That is with a D, traders. They traded things in boats. They were famous for controlling all of the shipping lanes in the area and they sought to exert control over the Mediterranean. In time, this brought them into conflict with Rome, and a cataclysmic series of wars was fought between Rome and her proxy states and Carthage and her proxy states. And eventually, after a great deal of struggle, the Romans found themselves in the climactic battle outside of Carthage at a place called Zama, and Carthage was defeated because their Nomidian cavalry defected to the Romans. Oh, rough. I guess, what do they say? Revenge is a dish best served cold. Those... And by cold, we mean like several centuries later. I'll tell you what, a Numidian never forgets. <laughs> Yeah, it should on the chronology. We should just briefly mention that none of Virgil's chronology makes any sense at all. Uh, Dido's dates are somewhere in the eighth, ninth century. In the uh, service of literature and poetic and, license, and isn't that what it's called? Dates are somewhere four hundred years previous to that, but it becomes a foundational story for Rome in terms of describing their interactions with Carthage. But before we get to all that. The Trojans arrive at Carthage.
piece of music that was spectacular very powerful stuff so the trojans have arrived in the city of carthage and they have been greeted by the beautiful queen dido who is ecstatic to have them there aeneas doesn't identify himself at first but his men tell his story and she's very excited to meet this aeneas character who's simply standing amongst his men but not standing out in any way? Correct. He just he's, he's, he's blending in with the crowd just to see what's going on in this place. And uh, the next thing they hear mm-hmm. is that Dido's suitor, King Yarvis, has attacked. Oh no. Troublesome Yarvis. Yeah. I think they're going to be fine because luckily for them, a large number of warriors just got dumped in their laps. But it's opera. <laughs> So before we get there, those mythology as well. (laughs) Those spectacular mythological warriors are going to offer their aid to Queen Dido. To the lady in distress? Indeed her. And so we have the damsel in distress, we have the heroic knight, he identifies himself to her, and sets out to go defend the new kingdom of Carthage, arm in arm, with the Carthaginian soldiers. Well, probably not literally arm in arm. That'd be kind of hard to fight, but you get the idea. <laughs> I get the idea. I get the idea. What a handy man to have around. Yeah, no, uh, this this Aeneas character, he's got a lot going for him, as as we'll see, and as uh, Dido is already starting to see. So. Is she falling for him? We'll get there. Okay. All right, let's have a Armored 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs on 89.1 KHOL, Sundays, 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time, in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud where you can find a treasure trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. And I know what you're all thinking. Grant, do you sing? No, can't hit a note to save my life. Stay tuned. The second half of today's show is coming right up.
You're listening to KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming, and this is Opera for Everyone. Today's program, we are taking a good look at Les Troyennes, the Trojans, by Hector Berlioz, in an opera that was written in the early part to mid part of the second half of the 19th century. And with me today, I have Grant, who is doing a magnificent job of explaining this um, powerful and important epic following the end of the Trojan War and the founding of Rome. Although we're in Carthage now. I do what I can. You do. <laughs> all right. So, so you left us and to, we... To nobody's enormous right. surprise. Okay. What's happened is the combined Trojans and Carthaginians have driven off the invaders who we shan't see again in this story, but again, are, do play a later and very pivotal role in the conflict between Carthage and Rome. The Punic Wars you're referring to. The Punic Wars, which is what all this builds up to. But and not seen in this opera. Yeah, and like there's there's a lot to be said about the Punic Wars, but the... <laughs> and much has been written. And much has been written, many volumes. <laughs> a lot of that's owed to the fact that the Punic Wars were the last time Rome fought what we call a peer adversary. That is to say, yes. the last time they fought a war where they were fighting someone who was, you know, you can debate exactly how strong Carthage was, but in the same ballpark. They felt like they were fighting on even footing. The question wasn't ever fighting the Celts. Are the Celts going to completely destroy us? Well, it wasn't the early Republic. But, like, by the time you're talking the classical period, by the time you're talking the period of Julius Caesar and company, Rome is the biggest kid on the block. They're stronger than everyone else around them. The mighty Roman Empire. Yeah, and that goes on for hundreds of years. And the next time that Rome fights a peer adversary is, is in fact, hundreds of, of years later. And that was the war that weakened both the Eastern Roman Empire and Parthian Empire to the point where the Arabian invasions from the south were able to conquer both. But correct me if I'm wrong, these are not battles or, or conflicts depicted in this opera. So let's get back to Carthage. And so Carthage has this lasting role in the Roman and by extension Western imagination as the great enemy that was, the one that could have toppled Rome, that could have stifled the whole thing in its cradle and failed to. And the interesting thing about the Punic War is, the second Punic War in particular, there were three Punic Wars. That's the one with Hannibal and the elephants, that's, isn't it? That's the <laughs> one we, we talk about the most is uh, the, the first Punic War was like a relatively straightforward conflict. There are a million wars like it. It's sort of interesting because Rome is Rome and Carthage is Carthage, but Rome wins the first war through some engineering ingenuity. And the second war is the one that gets this enshrined place in our idea of how history came to be. And what's interesting about it is that Rome lost it didn't lose, by the way. It won the war. It successfully defeated Carthage and exacted a heavy tribute, but... But Hannibal was a pretty worthy adversary. For a long time there, Rome was in the position where if it had had any kind of rational leadership, they would have surrendered. For a long time, Hannibal was running around in Italy. The Romans were unable to do anything to stop him. He couldn't quite breach the gates of Rome itself but he was able to peel away many of their Italian allies and was in effective control of 
most of the Italian peninsula. This is when most cultures or civilizations or people even would have just said, enough is enough. They win. We're done here. Let's go home.
As we're experiencing this opera, we should, and we're seeing the 
Carthaginians and the soon to become founder of Rome, mythical founder of Rome, and we're seeing them fight together, we're supposed to have in our heads knowledge of this great conflict between these two great powers that, that is in the future as far as this opera is concerned. Indeed, in case you hadn't figured it out, we know this opera doesn't have a happy ending because we know that Dido and Aeneas end up, well, their civilizations anyway, end up as mortal enemies. That Carthage is to Rome the great enemy in a way that no, no one Rome ever fought other than them uh, was. And it was because it was because the Romans were only able to defeat them in the first Punic War because they had this superb, clever engineering and they were able to transform the naval war into a land war and therefore win the day. And the in Roman the second war... Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say the Roman engineering is famous. I always think of the aqueducts and a lot of the architecture. Well, and you just get you gotta love like all the ways that they... The, the, the incredibly sort of... Super villainy, insane kinds of engineering feats that they would pull off to do things that other people thought were impossible. Right. They would see an impregnable fortress and they would just build a mountain next to it so that they could load all their soldiers into it. It was just, it was... <laughs> that wouldn't be the first thing to spring to mind, would it? Build a mountain! <laughs> and and that's, that's the thing about the Second Punic War, is that it's this testament to just the Roman will to see victory happen. One way or another. And they just kept trying different things until they finally were able to do something that worked. And they just refused to surrender. And so people looked at that. They looked at the fact Rome had in many ways militarily lost the war, but they kept going because of these moral, because of these, these cultural factors, because of these aspects of what Rome was and who they thought they were. And this sense emerged, and perhaps existed to an extent at the time, this sense emerged that Rome was a city with a destiny. And that's what's key oh. here in the opera. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, this whole cultural aspect, we're going to see little snippets of that culture in the opera. Yeah, and, and, and the, the key thing is that Aeneas has a destiny. Mm. Dido is acting as a more or less rational actor. She's created her city. She's being a politician. She's thinking about maybe having a husband. Like, she's a little bit of a romantic. She still loves her the husband who died. She's a, she's a very faithful widow. But she's, you know, more or less operating the way that human beings ordinarily operate. But Aeneas, Not so Aeneas, huh? Aeneas is borne away by the currents of fate. He Ooh. is Gatsby. He is Dr. Horrible. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to let you explain all those references. <laughs> <laughs> so so what happens next is, and you probably could tell this where this was heading, Dido and Aeneas, they, they fall in love. And so this next and scene... And into each other's arms, perhaps? And, and into each other's arms. And this next scene depicts them off... We'll say cavorting. Okay.
welcome back to Opera for Everyone. We are listening to Les Troyens by Hector Berlioz, the Trojans. And we've been following Aeneas as he has made his way to Carthage and into the arms of Queen Dido. So the section here, this part of the play, it's kind of strange. It actually slows down for a bit. Ooh. There's this just time, uh, they've had victory, there's the celebration, and there are various people perform. We've got a little bit of Nutcracker Suite kind of thing going on here. <laughs> we've, we've got the, the, the Mother Ginger, and we've got the Sugar Plum Fairy and all that. <laughs> but that's not what's in... I mean, that is to an extent what's going on in Hector Berlioz's mind, that he's thinking about the convention in French operas at the time of... Very strong to always have ballet, you're right. That's true. And so that's, that's, that's the contemporary context. The, there's an ancient context to this too, which is that this play kind of divides into sort of three parts. There's the first segment that takes place in Troy, the second segment that takes place in Carthage with the Trojans arriving and fighting them off uh, the enemies of the Carthaginians. And the third act where most of what we might consider plot actually transpires. But before we get to the plot as such, what we get is this slowing down, this sort of silliness, this sort of fun, this strange, sometimes exotic, and there's this segment with Aeneas and Dido in the woods, and there are fawns and satyrs and or, oh or satyrs or however we're arguing. We were arguing about the pronunciation. It turns out it's one of these things that varies between British and American English. But there's these woodland creatures, spirits. This is all part of the convention of tragedy. Ancient tragedy was, or Athenian tragedy anyway, which been a bedrock of, of uh, how we talk about literature. Athenian tragedy always had tragedies in a cycle of three. Oh, yes, like the Oedipus cycle. And after the first two, you would have a lighthearted bit of kind of silly entertainment, often using fawns and nymphs and dryads. A and palate kind of cleanser. Thing. Yeah, and, and this, is a, this is a part of the, the way that this works. And so that's kind of what happens here, is between all, this, all the heaviness of everything, we get this, we'll say, palate cleanser. Or, or a respite. A little, yeah. a little chance to recoup from all the intensity. Yeah. Okay, so, good. And so here are some of the songs from this respite. Oh, enjoy, everyone. Enjoy your palate cleanser. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. Today's program is Les Troyens by Hector Berlioz, a masterful opera about the experience of the Trojans who leave after the Trojan War, led by Aeneas. And right now they're in Carthage and we have had just a little bit of a respite. Operas and indeed opera for everyone. We have a little bit of a race to the finish here. A lot happens (laughs) very quickly here. It starts with a discussion among the Trojans as to what they're going to do now. They have begun to integrate into Carthaginian culture. I saw this beautifully in the costuming of one of the productions that we've referenced, which showed the colors of the Carthaginian clothing and the colors of the Trojan clothing beginning to blend and in fact coming together and creating these new colors that they were both wearing. So they were able to create this new culture. In the discussion they're having, is there going to be a concern for loss of identity as they meld with the other culture? No, it's mostly just the discussion of fate. It's interestingly, everybody seems really mostly happy in Carthage. It's the fact that the officers in particular are talking about how they promised that they were going to do this. This is their sacred duty. On some sense, they promised this to the women who sacrificed themselves at Troy. I'm sorry, what's their sacred duty? To go to Italy. To go to Italy. To move on and carry on. Now, why exactly they don't... Take the Carthaginians with them is an excellent question for another day. Because they're refugees anyway. But yes, they they feel like they have this sacred duty to go to Italy. And so the officers are pushing to get everybody to pack up, get back in the ships, and head northeast. The soldiers under Aeneas' command are not entirely on board with this. Some of them... (laughs) No sing. pun intended. <laughs> yeah, they, they sing that they're they're pretty happy in Carthage. Some of them have Carthaginian girlfriends. Oh, sure. Like, things are going pretty well for them. Why would you leave? Carthage seems to have a certain amount of developing wealth. This is part of the historical tradition. Carthage was famously a generator of wealth. It was one of the great trading hubs in the ancient world. And that was the reason for the Third Punic War is after the Second Punic War, Rome basically took away all of Carthage's colonies, took away all its money, and they're like, yeah, you guys are you guys are completely hosed. And Carthage just went back to trading and suddenly had enough money that they were hiring huge mercenary armies. They and, went back to doing what they knew how to do. And yeah, wow. despite everything the Romans took from them, they're like, yeah, whatever. We didn't build this because we had lots of farms. We built this because we had the greatest port in the world. Yeah, in in our culture, we don't hear so much about history from the Carthaginian point of view. It's always from the Roman point of view. It's it's an interesting thing. History, as you know, is written by the writers, and written by the writers. History is not written by the victors. That's a common misconception. It's it's a commonly said phrase. People say it all the time, but like, okay, <laughs> most of the stuff that we've got talking about the whole Julius Caesar thing is kind of sympathetic to the Senate, and why is that? Because like, lots of them were writers, and so. Yeah. That's one case among many. China was constantly getting invaded by powerful invaders. It was constantly getting overrun. They kept losing. And yet, 
we know about China because they were meticulous record keepers, just like the Romans. Yes, and, and other civilizations as well. If they have a written language and they keep their records, then we know more about them than yeah. the ones that don't. The you know nomadic tribes and such, even if they're very successful, we don't know so much about them. So that's the real trick, is if you yeah. want to have a legacy in this world, good bookkeeping. Good bookkeeping. <laughs> so... So the, the, the Trojans, some of the Trojans are restless, some of them want to stay. They kind of go back and forth. And ultimately, Aeneas is persuaded by the ghosts of the fallen dead. Oh. In the, the climax of, of the pieces we're about to hear is Aeneas finally being persuaded by the ghosts of the dead. To them, at least. And perhaps to the gods as well. He has a sacred duty. Yes, just as he had to listen to Hector's ghost earlier. And so Aeneas finds himself at the place where he really doesn't want to be. He needs to leave. He is sworn to leave. But to leave Carthage means to leave Dido. And he's not anticipating that she'll take it well. <laughs> she's not that kind of woman, huh? Yeah. Do you think she'll take it well? No, I don't think she's going to take it well. <laughs> no, no, she doesn't. Not so much. <laughs> Carthage, 
What happens next is, of course, that they have the confrontation. He's, he's told all of his soldiers that they need to be making their preparations to leave. And he tells her that he's heading out. And she's like, what do you got going on? He's like, I have sovereign orders from the gods. And, and she's like, gods? You've got a woman right here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, and she she's powerless to stop him. She wants to stop him she tries to stop him she seeks to stop him she in fact sends her soldiers after him telling them carthaginians hurry pursue the trojans strive with your oars go after them in ships that is and this is how she's trying to keep her lover yeah she sends her soldiers her her navy yeah yeah i bet that works out just about as well as you'd imagine (laughs) well you see he got a he got a good enough head start that she's unable to stop him and so wow talk about a woman scorned (laughs) and so this this next piece is Dido coming to the the end of the play is Dido trying to stop Aeneas, unable to stop Aeneas, and ultimately she sets up a pyre, a funeral pyre, and everyone's very mystified and confused and what in the world's going on. And next thing you know, she has thrown all of his weapons on the fire. Oh, she's the funeral to, is for his weapons. The she's, pyre. She's gonna <laughs> she's gonna burn all of his stuff. Um, <laughs> great you could totally modernize this <laughs> well and then she throws herself on the fire oh i'm sorry i shouldn't be laughing yes it gets real grim real quick and it turns out that uh it goes from the girlfriend burning the ex's uh stuff in the cardboard right. box to her dying on the funeral pyre and shouting out a curse for all the generations to follow a oh curse. no Upon Which is going to explain history, his isn't it? And that's and that's where the history comes from. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's why that's why Rome and Carthage fought all those wars. Well, there's lots of reasons, and if you want an accurate one, you probably need to look at some economic history. And if you want okay, an okay. entertaining want one, you probably want to read *The Everlasting Man* by G.K. Chesterton. But uh, <laughs> but the Punic Wars are the wars between Carthage and Rome that are so devastating. And and that's also where the very famous Hannibal and his elephants crossing the Alps 
appears in history. And she makes a prophecy here, right at Ooh. the very end of a, a great, curse great and a conqueror. <laughs> this great conqueror, Hannibal, who will go and effectively defeat Rome, but Rome will refuse to be defeated. And ultimately, Cartago de Leta Est. Okay, you can't leave that untranslated. It all comes from uh, Cato, the great orator, who for years would end every speech that he gave, no matter what the topic, he would end it with the statement, and also, I think Carthage must be destroyed. Really, if he's just talking about, like, the roads, and Carthage must be destroyed. I I saw someone (laughs) on the internet today making a joke where Carthage came up in a conversation and they As it does. they typed out a long essay on how much they disliked koala bears and then at the very end said and also I think Carthage must be destroyed. Again, I think we could update that one too. Yeah, for our long-standing grudges. I think that long-standing grudges and scorned lovers and burning their stuff in boxes and sending soldiers after them, well maybe not that last one, but all the rest of it <laughs> it all all seems very contemporary. Yeah, it does. All right, so we're going to listen to that now? Yes, and that'll uh, take us to the end of the play. So thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. This is the show that makes opera accessible and hopefully enjoyable for everyone. Thanks, Grant, for coming by and helping us out. Thanks so much for having me.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Opera can seem challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. Because we believe opera Opera is is for for everyone. everyone.